0: Blob Talk Radio.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 500. Yes, it took us a long while to get here, but we did. And with me, as usual, is Mr. Carl Kafer.
2: Greetings, salutations, everyone. Nice to be here for the 500.
1: And as a special guest, we have... The one and only Fred Gory, the punk rock king of New York. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) And as our very, very, very special guest, we have uh, one of the best Aussie Exploitation directors, by the way, of France. Am I right, Felipe?
3: Well, I I was made in France, yes. I was made in Paris.
0: (laughs) Felipe
2: Moore Congratulations
3: congratulations on 500 episodes Oh my god, that's a lot of work We've been
2: doing it now, Stephen, what,
3: seven years?
1: Yeah, seven years
3: Tremendous, well done, guys
2: Well, thank you very much We could also say the same thing with you And all the films and everything you've done over the years, Felipe
3: Well, thank you, thank you At this (laughs) point, I, I wouldn't know what else to do Although I think I could be a good head waiter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, How did you... uh, Go ahead, Carl.
2: No, no, you go ahead, Steve.
1: How did you get started in uh, making films or wanting to make films?
3: Well, you know... excuse me, I just loved movies from a very early age because we lived in the city in Australia, in Melbourne, and so we were surrounded by uh, all the cinemas. And so um, I'd see every movie that came out from an an early age, so I I just sort of drifted drifted into it. And then uh, when I actually got a job, um, I'd written a script uh, uh, that Peter Sellers liked and they paid me. They paid me. I just couldn't believe that you you can you could get paid and and be working in movies. It was incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah, I that just seems like it blew my mind too. You mean what, they pay you to do this? I'd do it for free. That's right. I'm not selling now.
3: <laughs> no, that's right. So look, I loved movies, I like I still do. I liked every genre. Um, I liked newsreels. I was just very intrigued as a kid and then a teenager and then as a young man um, by the process and, uh, and how you make movies. And, you know, now, of course, it's actually easier than it's ever been technically uh, with the digital technology. I mean, uh, um, I, 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 I'm kind of jealous of all the young filmmakers. It's, it's so much cheaper to make a movie now than before.
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, I was just going to you say you don't have to really go no through all that, anymore. you know,
2: raising money and pre- pre-production is, is is cut down and that sort of thing these days. But but yeah, I mean, but you did it when 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 it was a little more difficult, and that takes a lot of uh, of um, hutzpah, so to speak.
3: Well, it's it's hutzpah. Um, But if you're passionate about it, uh, you you somehow get through it. I mean, the most uh, onerous part of filmmaking, and it still is, is raising the money. If you're doing a conventional kind of movie and you need a a proper budget, it's just it's terribly hard to raise money. And more now than ever, because films, um, I mean, there are various opinions on this. Uh, but films now are so formulaic uh, that it 's made it even more difficult for for anyone trying to do something original to raise money to make a movie. The studios are are just you know putting out these big budget incredible incredibly big budget movies um, so they 're making less but but I have to say the independents can go out and make a movie on digital and it 's not that costly. But to think yeah. that movies now it's not unu- it's not unusual for a movie now a studio movie to cost 200 million dollars I mean it's just crazy really
0: Yeah what uh, were
3: you going to say
4: uh, I mean just um I was just going to say honestly like if you want a real movie or something that's really creative or artistic go for an independent because like you said big studio films they're going for what's going to sell how can we market when you make a truly independent film with a vision, that, that's just, you know, more solid as far as like an artistic vision and something you can hold on to and say, that's mine. That's not a studio. Well, that's that's, not that, a that's studio. where that's I'm coming
3: from. from. I mean, I mean yeah. I, I, obviously, I'd never turn down a big job. Um, it'd be crazy to do that. But where, I, where I'm yeah. coming from and where you don't need all the money is, is what you're describing. So I'm working on some films like that right now. I'm working on a film called The Man Who, Th- the Man Who Thought He Was Salvador Dali. And um, mm. a kind of a, well, it's not really a kid's movie, but, but it could well become something uh, kids like. It's called The Hunchback Bee of Notre Dame. And that's a, huh. a part animation, part, part live story based on Victor Hugo's great story, The
4: Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, that sounds great. That's those both of those sound great.
1: I got to see okay. them. Well, you started before there even pretty much is, was considered an Australian film scene.
3: Well, that's right. Well, uh, I'm very proud of uh, one film um, which actually broke the ice for Australian movies in America, and that's Mad Dog Morgan, starring Dennis Hopper. And I, I'm I'm proud of it because that was the first. Australian film to get a proper release in the, in the US. I think it's
0: 1976.
3: In in uh, New York and LA and that broke the ice for Australian films and started the so-called new new wave of of Australian movies.
1: I'm impressed that uh Dennis Hopper declared dead on the set while you were making uh, Mad Dog Morgan, and still finished the movie. That's impressive that you filmed the dead man.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> no, he was—he was,
3: he was never—he he was never pronounced dead on set. He was pronounced um, uh, well. He was arrested for being um, DUI after we'd finished shooting. Uh, the day after we finished. And then um, the judge um, said to Dennis um, the following morning in court, I wasn't there, but it was reported to me. The judge said, Mr. Hopper, I'm looking at the um, your blood test here, and I can tell you that you are clinically dead.
4: <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> That's I've
4: actually...
3: Um, but, so he said, you're never going to be allowed to drive in... Uh, in uh, Victoria or the state of New South Wales again. In fact, you're never going to be allowed to drive in Australia because we're taking you straight to the airport.
0: (laughs) 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 But anyway, uh, Dennis (laughs) was,
3: you know, these are, these are just, um, they're true, but, uh, it really has nothing to do with the fact that Dennis was absolutely great in the movie. I mean, he, he was, he never let me down. Uh, while we were shooting. He was just uh, fantastic. You know, he'd been in um, studio movies from the age of, I think, like 17 or 18. He was a Warner Brothers contract player.
2: Yeah. The first film, tra- I think, was 1952, actually, if I'm not yeah. mistaken.
3: Well, they, they put them through very uh, rigorous training, you know, horse riding, fencing, all sorts of stuff continuity, so no matter what state Dennis was in, his continuity was always tremendous. He was actually highly trained, you know. Fantastic, mm-hmm. really. So he he yeah, was... I uh
1: Morgan is one of the best films that Troma ever put out on DVD, and it has a nice documentary on it, too.
3: Oh, that's good, yeah. Look, Troma came in late in the day. It had been released before Troma, uh, theatrically, by a company called Cinema Shares. And Troma released a DVD later on. Um, uh, But there's a very good, actually the best DVD of that movie um, is, uh, it's a Blu-ray, is released by Umbrella out of Australia. Um, But you can get it on Amazon. It's got a whole lot of extras and they they revisited all the locations um, about a year ago. Uh, where we'd shot, and they filmed the locations as they are now. It's quite They really uh, did a great job. It's Umbrella. It's on Amazon. Yeah, umbrella, you can find we've,
2: it. We've done a, a, a couple of uh, films, uh, watches yeah. on Umbrella, and, and uh, just a fantastic company to, uh, and, and the way that they package everything. They're, they're great. Uh, I, I agree. agree. I just wrote that down. Say that again?
1: And most of their stuff is region free, so anyone can just go out and buy it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely getting it. <laughs> well, you won't and be was disappointed. Brother, but can
1: you spare a dime, as we talked about earlier, nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary?
3: It was nominated for a Golden Globe. Um, okay. Well, that's a really interesting movie too And that's just out in a Blu-ray, by the way And, and a regular DV, DVD Uh came out last year Again, after many years I mean, I made that film in 75 And um, that was a, that's an unusual movie I mean, that's one of the first documentaries to get a wide theatrical release But also... Um, it was made, you know, now it's called a found footage film. It was made entirely of film from other films, um, many, many other films. So I, I cut together, I got the rights to about nine James Cagney movies, and we recre- and we made a new character starring James Cagney uh, and FDR, by the way. They're the two main characters. And um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, when the film came out, James, James Cagney was really pissed off. Uh, about what what we'd done. But then all these great reviews came out about the movie and he changed his mind. He ended up really liking it. But it was a bit of a shock to him to see all these movies cut up. But, you know, it was a different kind of movie. It was... uh, um, Well... uh, you know, they call it postmodernist, whatever that really means, but, but, or um, a
2: pastiche, if you want, or something like that. I remember, yeah, it was it a collage
3: of other movies, but, collage, um, yeah, There's a collage, but it was, it was very successful, and it started a whole new genre. I mean, I think it was called, after that, there's something called, I think it's called Atomic Cafe, but there was a yeah, lot of other Atomic compilations. Cafe, uh... A lot of compilation films came out after that. So I'm very proud of that one,
2: too. Yeah, I remember seeing that on, on uh, HBO. And Hold on, Steve. I remember seeing that on HBO, and the thing that really hit me was the way that it was put together. I, the editing of that must have been hellacious.
3: Good God. Well, it was, you know, yeah, it was pri- prior to digital. So um, I edited with my then very close friend and collaborator, Jeremy Thomas. He, he later became a, uh, he, uh, then he produced Mad Dog with me. But so Jeremy and I were in the cutting room in London there for 24 uh, 7 for for months putting that together. It'd be much easier yeah. now with with digital, but in then we were cutting strips of film and um, it was um, it was a challenge to find relationships between uh, all the clips, but there had there was a script i mean I had done a script which was which outlined the basic main events of the thirties, and so we mm-hmm. the researchers and myself and jeremy we all found film according to the script which was basically a chronological narrative of that period.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah
3: very no. very
2: wonderful film. Wonderful film. Good thank you.
1: And then you did your first American film which I found pretty good but there's always been stories about the beast within having uh
3: studio interference in it not not not, there wasn't that much interference really um uh not really uh the um uh the only interference well the the it didn't come out in time i mean there was problems at the studio- the studio was taken over by a new regime so the the re- release of the film was six months late, which was a pity because we'd done some very innovative uh, special effects in it um, but um the um i'm trying to think really no that the, the, the we had as- we had a preview of the film and um in the scene where the the head of the uh, paul clemens it sort of starts to explode it gets bigger and bigger and bigger well in the test audience people started screaming and they ran out of the theater uh uh shocked and disgusted and uh, uh this they the studio one of the studio executives there said you know you better you better um cut that out cut cut that down and I said, why? That's, that, it's a horror film, isn't it? It's supposed to freak people out. He said, that's too much. Cut it, cut it down. And um, David Putnam, um, a producer of mine, um, who produced Brother Can You Spare a Dime, he had told me, he said, when you're in Hollywood, Philippe, just say yes. Just say yes, because they'll never do it anyway. So that was in my head so this guy says cut that scene down I and I said yes okay fine and I never did and they never looked at it he was right so that's that's still in the so that was studio interference by default that didn't work out for the studio but worked out for me and and that's why that scene is so over the top I like that scene I don't know whether you're familiar with the movie but it's his, oh, his, oh, head yeah. grows, big, yeah. his head just grows big. His head just bigger and bigger and bigger. It's it's really kind of surrealistic.
1: Yeah, you may yeah, not like realize but that that was what saw. we call an HBO and a VHS classic over here during the 80s. Right, guys?
4: Well, that's great. Yeah, no, my friends and I, that was one of our favorites. Every time Friday night came, we'd hit the video store, grab our booze, grab our pot, and grab our videos, and that was always in the mix.
3: Oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm 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 <laughs> proud of it. Good on you guys. Yeah.
4: We loved it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, to, you yeah, know, for
3: studio movie, it was over there. It was totally out there, you know. Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. No, and, and again, like, it's that, vi- It's like I said before, it's that vision. It's like, you know what you want. You know what the audience wants. The studios don't. They're looking to sell, and, you, I mean, basically, my friends and I, that was one of our favorites because it was different than the studio Hollywood films that was coming out at the time. So that's why it's stuck in our memories and why we still buy the movies. Yeah, well, you that, know, that's it what, it one... Was it the all that's slasher, one,
1: slasher, slasher. So it's like a monster movie?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, monster movies and horror movies, the one interesting thing about it in the studio system is that because they're low-budget, Generally, they're very low budget for a studio movie. And um, so they, basic, they do leave the directors alone because they don't care that much about it. Uh, this, this, the, 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 I was working for United Artists at the time, and they were making Heaven's Gate, which was a disaster for them because, because of the budget. But my budget was tiny compared to that. I think my budget was $5 million. And I came in on time and on budget, and so they just left me alone. Uh, but in the horror genre, there is a little bit more artistic latitude, even now with the studios, because the, budget, the budgets are low compared to their big investments.
1: And after me, Joe Blasco became one of the biggest uh, special effects artists of the time.
3: Yeah, well, uh, the beast within. Uh, really, the main guy was Tom Berman.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, have you heard of him, the Berman Studio?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of
3: Berman. <laughs> yeah, they were the main guys. And uh, one little story I can tell you about it, which is a bit unpleasant, but it it it's, it's kind of where the horror turned into reality. Is the studio, um, told me to go shoot the film in this they said it's a deserted mental asylum in Mississippi and um when i got there it was obviously wasn't deserted there were crazy people walking around so i said to the producer how's this going to work we, we he said i'll get back to you and and he said uh, they they said the top floor of this mental asylum is not being used so you have to shoot there now let me tell you guys this was at the time the largest metal asylum in the United States. There are four thousand inmates. And um, anyway, in the in you know you've seen the beast within in that transformation scene where where uh, he's turning into the beast. We had four different heads of Paul Clemens in different stages, where the tongue sticks out, and then he keep. That's how you did it in those days. You had different models of the head, and you showed a you filmed a progression. Anyway, as we were filming this, it was pretty uh, horrific. Um, most of them, I said to most of the crew, oh, you can just go take a break. I'm going to just stay here with the cameraman and we'll film this ourselves. We, won't take, we don't need any help on this one. And as we're filming, I hear behind me, I hear like sort of cries of anguish. Like,
0: oh, 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 oh.
3: And I turned around and there were four or five inmates of the asylum the craziest hairstyles you've ever seen in um like surgical gowns and i realized that they had stumbled up here and because of the lights it looked like surgery looked like medical stuff was going on they thought it was real they and they were just freaking out and so this went on for a little bit and i said to the assistant director we better get these people out of here they're freaking out and then um the, the the proper nurses in the in the hospital came running in and said, "I'm oh, really sorry these people got out," and they shuffled them off. So that was wow. one of those incredible instances where um, uh, r- real life and the movie uh, blurred. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, just think of how horrible it would have been if they wouldn't have been scared and they they knew that
4: they were fake. <laughs> Say that again. would have had a movie. I know. Well, I was going I to say, you should have turned the camera on the inmates and start filming them.
2: No, no, you don't do that. No, 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 I, I,
3: <laughs> I, um, look, you're just not allowed to do that. You know, invasion yeah, of yeah, privacy okay. and all the rest of it. But, um, I could have recreated it with actors and maybe someday yeah. I will. <laughs> yeah,
4: because so I'm sitting here thinking, wow, what a great film idea. Inmates stumbling upon something so Horrific. That'd be totally
3: cool. <laughs> well, you know, it did occur to me at one point. I thought, Jesus, maybe this is the way they get people into these institutions. Maybe we're never going to be allowed out. what <laughs> <But laughs> one of my—I uh, got to totally say—one right of my favorite. <laughs> my, one of my favorite movies is Shock Corridor that Samuel Fuller made. Have you ever seen oh, that?
2: God, <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, oh, you you've opened up a data of worms. Yeah. Go for it. You're talking, Felipe.
1: You're talking to someone that has an original poster from the the 50s release of it hanging on his wall.
3: Oh, great. Well, what a great movie.
0: Yeah. Uh,
3: and uh, uh, Dave Chappelle copied it a bit in a skit when he had the the black guy who thought he was running the Ku Klux Klan. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, the
1: black races. Yeah.
3: Yeah, the black yeah. racist. Well, that's in Shock Corridor.
1: Yeah, that's no, still absolutely a it is. Scene. You hear this racist dialogue and this horrible violent and stuff, and all of a sudden, boom! It's a black guy.
3: I know, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely amazing. But so was the. But you know, Samuel Fuller uh, was onto that early
4: on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that
4: was imitated in a punk rock video too, where they show going down the corridor of um an insane asylum and there's a guy in a clan outfit who rips the hood off and it's a black guy. Right, well, yeah. there you he, go. Been, that, there you go. He's been copied a lot. <laughs> yeah. State of Louis.
1: Yeah, Sam Fuller is one of my heroes. I love it because he had that pulp sensibility and just Yeah. He's raw.
2: Yeah, it's
3: very raw and you know he'd been um uh a newspaper man. That's he got that that Sensibility from writing stories for newspapers under the under the deadline. You had to hit hard yeah. and fast. That's what his movies yeah. do, really. They hit hard and fast. Absolutely,
2: no question about it.
3: I'm very i friendly with his widow, Krista Fuller. She's wonderful,
0: oh, and yes, she she's is.
3: and as she describes herself, she says, "I'm the dead pigeon on Beethoven Street."
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> one of my favorites. Was... I actually was uh, at the New York premiere. This is in the 80s. Uh, that Jay Hoberman uh, got a print of White Dog. Oh, right. oh that's, a... To...
3: That, that's a really yeah, no. interesting movie, too.
2: Oh, it's a fantastic film. And I was actually in the uh, audience for one of those uh, showings. They only did it over the weekend. And you had to. Pay a good amount of money to go there, I think at that point it was like twenty or twenty five but I went because I needed to see that so so what yeah, was the we're, reaction we're all, from the what what was the reaction the reaction was uh, a lot of it was puzzlement to a certain degree <laughs> right <laughs> you know you know i mean uh, uh but yet, man, when that ending when that ending hits. You could hear audible gasp.
3: Yeah. You
2: could actually hear audible Yeah. Gasp.
3: Well, it should have been released. I mean, you know, it's so uh, uh we are very conservative here in so many ways that, you know, a film like that wasn't released. That's just crazy, really. Um, but anyway, yeah, well, Samuel it Fuller. A racist
2: he... and it's an anti-racist film.
3: Exactly. You know, it's very it's uh, very difficult. To, it, it's not a satire, but in a way, it was a satire. Um, it's very difficult to do satire in movies because people. And I'm just going to sound like a snob, but so many people are stupid. They don't understand what they're watching. So even yeah, I with agree. even with tunes like South Park and stuff, it's obviously mm-hmm. satire, but people don't. They 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 they, they think it's real. It's very, they a very it's difficult literal. thing. What?
2: They think it's literal.
3: That's right. You it's know? A very difficult thing. Like you know, Doctor Strange Love, um, is uh, you know a brilliant satire. Mhm. And um and that and that was confusing. That movie confused a lot of people. But what a brilliant satire that was. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely.
1: Definitely. You know. People. Well. That's the problem. Most people want everything to be spelled out for it to be easy.
3: Yeah. They they, they they do. But you know it's very difficult with a movie because you don't know who's going to see it. And basically every what do we call it? Every frame of mind will see you film. And, and there's different levels of intelligence and education and everything. So it's very difficult to make a a movie that appeals to a lot of people, and um, of course you see it in the studio movies where the, where it's basically the lowest common denominator. But, but it's interesting though yeah. because the comics are comics uh, appeal to everybody, and now basically the you know, these Marvel comic feature films are, are they're basically big budget comics. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's a beautiful thing because your next movie was a comic book movie. And it was a musical (laughs) by uh, Richard O'Brien, who did the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and you got Christopher Lee singing in it. If you don't watch The Return of Captain Invincible for anything, that one scene where Christopher Lee is singing about booze is worth the whole movie.
0: Well,
3: look, thank you. I agree with you. And by the way, he agrees with you he he said he said a couple of times that's the best thing he ever his favorite scene in a movie's d ever done he, uh, there's yeah. a couple of books where he says that he loved to sing christopher and uh and he was a great singer. He could sing uh Wagner operas uh by by the way, you wouldn't want to get him started on that. It would go on and on and on but
0: he just, <laughs> he, he,
3: he loved the sound of his own voice, but he was very, he was a really good singer and he loved doing that. And that was a movie where I had, uh, I had some freedom obviously. And my idea was to cross genres. Now I found of course, that if you start messing up with genres at crossing genres, people do get confused. They don't like their genres crossed and that had everything in it. Um, but what i'm very proud of is before we made invincible and it was written by um a terrific writer steve D'Souza, who later went on to write die hard and other big budget hero movies the the, the movies we were sending up in invincible he went on to write for real and they were huge hits <laughs> but um he uh um he had originally come up came up with the idea of um A blacklisted superhero and i really liked that so after we made invincible uh with which you know he's an alcoholic superhero and he has to be sobered up to fight evil and fascism and uh after we made before we made that movie no superhero had problems and Mm -hmm. but after we made that movie every superhero has psychological problems it's really funny (laughs) we started a they all, you know and in fact the movies are about their problems. But when yeah. we made it, that was that was absolutely uh, a breakthrough. Um and uh, Alan Arkin was great, um um and Christopher Lee I think was fantastic.
2: Yeah. And it also has one of my <laughs> favorite bits of dialogue is between Arkin and that. And Arkin says, uh no, actually it's Lee. Says, you know, same old demands, uh, self-righteous, moralistic, you know, whatever. And and Captain Invincible says, fine talk from a socio-paranoid schizophrenic with delusions of grandeur. With Chris yeah. Lee's <laughs> just says, thank you. Yeah, it's <laughs> tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah, you worked with two of my favorite actors of all time in that movie. I love Ark and have for many, many years. And then, and, well, and then that, Christopher Lee. I mean that. I didn't get to see that until much later, but when yeah. I saw it, my mouth hit the floor. Seriously. And, well, and the other thing about that film, uh, you, you talk about Lee's number, but the one, the bullshit number is fucking hysterical.
3: Well, I'm proud to say I wrote the complicated lyrics on that.
2: <laughs> well, you did a very fine job, my 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 friend. No doubt. <laughs>
3: yeah, bull, 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 bull. Shit, 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 shit. No, that's it's funny stuff.
2: <laughs> uh,
3: um, but I, um, I uh, what? An, an observation I have in retrospect about that movie about the actors is that they they came from two totally different traditions of acting. Christopher Lee was the English stagecraft. Very controlled, you know. And Alan Arkin mm-hmm. was much more the laid-back, relaxed, highly trained, but a totally different style of acting. Well, and I think he's that, really, that really helped.
2: And, and pop uh, comedy, Arkin does. He was part of Second City, so.
3: That, well, that's right. Um, but the, they were different. I mean, they they were, uh, it it helped the movie that they were so different, you know, as people. hmm how did you
1: get Richard O'Brien to write the so- some of the songs for it? Well, was that a hard thing? When to I do?
3: first, uh, when I first got, well, let me go back a bit. Jim Sharman, who directed Rocky Horror, mm-hmm. was a uh, one of my earliest friends in Australia. He was a stage director then, and he, and he was. We were very good friends, and I knew him in London and everything. In fact, he played when he got the original. Uh, Score and music and singing for uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He played me the whole thing in London, and 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 I said to him, uh, Jim, I don't get this. I just don't, I don't get. It. I think it's corny. Doctor Frankenfurter. What's funny about that? And Jim said, no, no, it's going to work. It's going to work. He never told me it was going to be all in drag and stuff. He didn't give me that aspect of it. But, I, but he said, no, this is going to work. This is going to work. So we knew each other, and Richard O'Brien knew of me and, um, in London. And um, um, I had the, when I read Steve's script, uh, Invincible, I, I, I wanted to make a musical. And I thought, well, maybe we can make this a musical and so I had the idea that each song would be in a different musical style. So if you look at that film, you'll see it's, there's crooning, there's Frank Sinatra, there's burlesque, there's Rocky Horror, there's all sorts of... Every, every song is in a different um, style. So um, anyway, uh, I went through the script and po- uh, pointed out which scenes could be songs. Um, and I sent that to uh, I sent that to uh, Richard O'Brien as an admirer I didn't know whether he'd want to do it or not I sent it to him and said would you like to do some some um, some of the songs and and he understood the humor of the whole thing and dare I use that word again the satire and he liked the idea of uh, of uh, different styles and so on and so forth and he loved Christopher Lisa so he just said yes so, uh, and but his song about the uh, the name you poison, that's just brilliant that song. That he wrote the lyric on that. That was brilliant. Might I say that, I'm old fashioned, Trey Van ordinary. You know, every 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 lyric is a, a drink.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I yeah. love that was, was that was my long
3: winded answer.
1: Moves, and at the end of it he gives Captain Invincible a bottle of old crow.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or worse, I think it maybe you gave him like I don't know, what do you call that? Just pure alcohol stuff. Grain um, alcohol. alcohol.
5: Yeah, yeah it was alcohol. something
3: really bad. Really bad. Mm-hmm. Um Yep.
1: But yeah, I've noticed that a lot of your fans have that beautiful string of uh satire to it.
3: And well, well I you know it's it, it's. It, I do have a sense of humor, and uh, and sometimes uh, it gets the better of
0: me.
1: <laughs> and that's a good thing. I'm
0: Absolutely. Good.
1: And you did one of the first uh, pro ecology action films. I can't even think of many pro ecology action films. Period. I mean, no, I know. It, it's 80.
3: Still see people going, at, "Hey, at, let's It an is interesting. Film. It It, it is
2: interesting. Okay, yeah, let them
0: go.
3: Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it it was interesting. I mean the, in the sixties in London and and here too, there was a lot about the environment. It, It was starting the whole save the environment movement, you know. So it was in my head, but not like that. Not as an activist or anything. I just thought it was interesting that. Um, the environment was being screwed up and and animals, so many species were dying even then. I mean, now, you know, hundreds of species have died since we made that movie. But, um, uh, and the bald eagle was was dying, which is incredible. So it was on the endangered species list. By the way, it's not anymore. The bald eagle is not anymore on the endangered species list. But uh, this is one funny anecdote from the making of that is that we had to get a bald eagle and, well, since they're endangered, we couldn't get one. But it turned out the U.S. government had a, like a, not a farm, but they had, like, a, a place where they were uh, keeping and treating injured bald eagles. And like a refuge.
2: So What? A refuge.
3: Yeah, a refuge, exactly. So we got an injured bald eagle to be our, our eagle. He's, he couldn't fly. He just had, he had an injured wing. And they, and he had to be flown first class with me <laughs> to the location <laughs> in a cage. He was sitting next to me in the next seat. And, uh, wow. And then and he had to be put up in his own hot, motel room. And so he was in his own suite. And um, uh, the assistant director said, oh, look, there, come and have a look at the bald eagle in his suite. And
0: <laughs>
3: so there's this... <laughs> sweet in the hotel in North Carolina and I look at the eagle and the poor eagle looks at me and he goes ah, ah, ah,
0: ah, and I, <laughs>
3: <laughs> Anyway, uh then we had to um you know so the surrealistic stuff you have to do in movies. Um uh he's carried up a mountain. He's carried up to the mountain top in a cage. And um that was difficult. But in the script, Brian James and John Dennis Johnston, two of my repertory company, they play rednecks who are um, recklessly hunting birds. And um, because of the um, the laws at the time, and they, uh, they still exist, we couldn't shoot a bird. We couldn't kill a bird and film it. They're uh, endangered. So we... Um, we... Uh, figured out I, don't, I can't remember how it all came about but someone said well we, what we're going to have to do is catapult dead birds into the sky and 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 they'll pretend to shoot these dead birds as we catapult them well we started doing that and then of course it was ridiculous because these birds are like in the weirdest positions with their <laughs> they're dead and they've been catapulted and it's bizarre and um anyway then there was a lunch break and uh i walked around the uh we're in north carolina um in deliverance country really and um and i see around this out of sight of everyone i see this guy with a truck with all different birds alive in cages and i walked up to him and, and i said uh, uh hey what are you doing he said oh uh, I can't do his accent, but he's a de- deliverance accent. He though I'm, um, they're filming, they're filming, uh, there and they want, uh, and they want dead birds. So every time they do a shot, they call me and I kill a bird and bring it up to them.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> oh man!
3: <laughs> so I realized, I mean, I'd done it about 20 times. I realized this guy, as I'd say, okay, another, another shot. They'd call this guy, I'd kill a bird and bring it up. So <laughs> it was just terrible. So in the movie you'll see if you ever see it again you'll notice Rutger has a bonfire of dead birds. And oh. um and those are the poor birds that we unwittingly uh unwittingly killed. As I look, crazy stuff happens when you're making movies, but um yeah. that was that was particularly uh, um off the chart. <laughs>
1: oh, I'm I can oh, do a Lord. South Carolina accent. Yeah, well, there's this company up there, and they're filming the third, and every time that they call for another bird, I just kill one and bring it on up to them.
3: Hell, that's exactly what it was like.
2: <laughs> <Hell>. <laughs> you're, you're well, having a good our, time now. Our, our, our native, so he can do yeah. that. I can't do that. It was, uh, <laughs>
3: uh, it was like with the, uh, when we first started uh, shooting, the assistant director was a t- local crew, okay, and they're all Viet, v- Vietnam vets they were tough guys they all carried guns and they um, but anyway the g- assistant director said to me we did the first shot and I said I like it he said what I said I like it L-I-K-E I like it <laughs> He and then he yelled out ah he likes it he likes it <laughs> <laughs> He likes it. So from then on, I'd say I like it.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> they, they, they were great guys. Actually, they're really funny. Um, um, they. Uh, I remember I, I heard shooting once. You know, a lot of gunshots, and I tried. To, I found out what it was. They'd seen a snake, and that. But basically, the whole crew shot the snake. And uh, it looked like uh, looked like uh, hamburger meat before you make the hamburger.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah,
4: I just came up from North Carolina, and yeah, it hasn't changed much. It's still the same, right? <laughs> still, um, still like that. I had to go down there for training, and I had to. I'm I'm up here from uh, New Jersey, New York area. I had to go down there and it was it was literally a culture shock to me because i didn't understand Apple, what people were saying but they're, Yeah, they're, you know they they're really
3: good people of course when you get to know them um
4: oh when yeah you, when
3: you get to know people everyone's the same um
0: yeah
3: and uh um we well, get a bit of it in the in the Well, what, what we let me start again uh, they're very suspicious of the federal government in those in those parts of the country. <laughs> and,
4: oh yeah, <laughs> and that
3: uh, we had to distribute call sheets. You know, a call sheet is the next day's shoot. Um, and some guys, some mountain men, uh, stopped the, the 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 young boy distributing the call sheets, and they saw this same thing printed, and they. They thought that the guy was a government, Was gov- they thought it was federal government because it was the same thing printed 40 times. They couldn't read it. And he he was a local, so he, he managed to uh, talk his way out of it, but they were going to shoot him uh, as a, as wow. a fed.
1: <laughs> Believe uh, me, one time yeah. me and a couple of my friends were walking in the woods when I was a teen, and we accidentally walked in this giant marijuana field. Yeah. And all of a sudden we heard this big echo Clack, clack You boys better turn around And get the hell out of here right now Because when I count to five I'm going to be shooting
3: that, That's exactly what my experience was like it was That's exactly what was going on
4: Yeah, yeah. I, I was there a couple months ago And it hasn't changed at all No, it hasn't <laughs> is South Carolina the same?
2: Yeah. I didn't go down South Carolina. It it's is. a little, it's a little different, but it's yeah, it's it's yeah. basically the same.
3: Yeah. Well, I so my, you know, see, I made two films in the in in the, in the South. I made The Beast Within Mississippi and that in North Carolina. So I really, it's the the history is amazing. Yeah. When I In Mississippi, they kept talking about the war. And I thought they were talking about the uh, Vietnam War. But they were talking about the Civil War.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they still hold that grudge.
0: Yeah, it's alive and well.
4: Yeah. I was taking the class, and the, even the teacher was just like, so you northerners, what do you think? And I'm just like, um, how do I answer this without getting killed? <laughs> yeah. My company sent me down there for some classes and it got it got scary a couple times with the teacher. So, I was like, okay, let me just pass and go back home.
0: <laughs> great right. people
4: though, like the food is yeah. great. The food is amazing and the people are Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Every yeah. everyone's nice to you. It's, it is it's, way it's different, different, different
1: than up there. with with a rebel flag. <laughs>
4: yeah, yes, you a just rebel don't flag. Anything. Yeah. Uh, as long as you don't say anything, like you just keep it to whatever, food or you, you stay away from culture and politics, you, you're fine. That's right. <laughs>
3: That's right.
1: And now we're um, on to the one that for some reason over here is your cult film when it comes to people who think, Am I right in thinking that you actually made Howling 2 as a comedy?
3: Well, let me put it to you this way: it drifted into it.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we can work with that.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah. It it it, it <laughs> drifted into it, and um, I I've got a really uh, uh, it's my fault. I've got a, a bad thing, and sometimes um. Uh, it's really bad for a director to have this, but I get the giggles. (laughs) And and the giggles are bad, especially if someone else gets them. And um, as we were making that movie, um, uh, uh, you know, I I started laughing at stuff. Uh, Christopher Lee, by the way, is, is of course the greatest deadpan actor of all time. I mean, he can just say anything deadpan. Um, but he does yeah. have a great sense of humor. So some of the dialogue in that, you know, he, he, uh, he started making me laugh and then, and, and he said, oh, he said, Philippe, I know, I know some of this is very amusing to you, but please, can you contain yourself because it's throwing me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
3: Yeah. Uh, How did she so, keep him look,
0: laughing when he put those lines? <laughs>
3: well, you know, I I I I bit my jacket. I bit my jacket. I still got the jacket from that movie, and there, there's bite marks in it. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, no, I and love then that the, film.
3: <laughs> you know, I I loved the the locals, all the local actors. When they delivered their lines, they all sounded like Peter Laurie. and it just that just cracked me up. You know. Um the two I don't know whether you remember the scene when they check into the hotel. Red Brown and uh, Annie McEnroe they check into the hotel and there's two guys sort of leering and laughing in, in, in the lobby yeah. there. That was you know uh that that was funny to me. Um but uh I, you know, look I agreed to direct it and um my agent at the time had said, Philippe, you know, uh just if I get you a job, just say yes. Don't read the script. If you read the script in Hollywood, you're never gonna to want to work here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh in that um in that mode, uh I you know, I tried to make make it as best I could. It was a very difficult shoot because we were behind the iron curtain. And actually, it was an incredible experience making it because we were making it in an occupied country. I only had four people with me who could speak English, my camera crew, and the actors. Um, So, uh, in in addition to the actors. So, it was very difficult. And uh, we didn't know that, uh, I didn't know at the time, Christopher Lee had really an extensive background in the Secret Service in World War II as a young man. So the KGB and the security people were bugging our phones and everything because they saw Christopher Lee as still being a spy because once you join the British Secret Service, technically you never leave. And it, Mm -hmm. it just hadn't occurred to me, but I'm sure it's very possible that he did. Uh, when he got back to London after he'd finished the film. It's very possible he was debriefed and asked about what it was like behind the Iron Curtain there. It's very possible. But anyway... Well, you do know um, that his
1: cousin basically partially based a literary character on him, don't you?
3: Say that again? No. Uh, I don't, I don't yeah. know that.
1: His cousin was Ian Fleming. And the character that Ian Fleming based on his and Lee's Experience when the British Secret Service was James Bond.
3: Well, that's that's absolutely gobsmacking. Yeah, I mean, true, I know too. a lot I mean, about. It I did not too. know the Ian Fleming connection. That is absolutely
2: amazing. Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: That explains. I mean, Christopher he told me a lot, but he did say that he shouldn't be telling me this stuff, and that he was still under oath. And he said that when he, he said that when we when he came back from uh, Prague, the uh, a representative of the secret service knocked on his door and reminded him of his oath. But that's amazing about Ian Fleming was his cousin. You say? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Well, you've blown my mind, guys. Thank you.
0: And the Oh wow! Lord of the Rings <laughs> it, is uh, there's a scene it, where it it, it,
3: it, it, oh, go ahead. it does explain why it does explain why we were under a microscope behind the Iron Curtain though, because this yeah. is yeah what it's ni- 1984 I think is that right? You'd probably
2: yeah yeah I think so yeah 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 and Nin- um, 1985 geez.
3: 1985
2: 1985
3: yeah so you know that's height of the Cold War. And, uh, they, the, um, um, one scene when the, uh, the punk scene, when the punks are dancing Mm -hmm. and I'd said to the uh, head of the studio there, do you have punks here? We need some punks as, as extras. And he said, what's a punk? I said, well, uh. It's a you know a guy, a young man usually uh will shave their head like a Navajo Indian in America, and they have rings through their nose or tattoos and the and the guy said, "Well, I don't know, but we'll put we'll find out for you and the the next day there's about a thousand punks outside the studio and it and it, they they got alarmed. I started filming the dance scene, and then the i'll I'll be brief on this story but uh The assistant director came to me and said, Philippe, there's a problem here. The studio has been surrounded by soldiers and uh, armed police. And there's a general, a Russian general out there who wants to talk to you. And I I thought, oh, Oh, Jesus Christ. So I go out there and this general looks as if he's just come back from uh, Afghanistan and, and killed 200 people. He looks like a really frightening-looking face. And, uh, and there's an interpreter there, and the interpreter says, uh, Mr. Moore, the general wants to know, what are you doing? And, uh, I, I, and I translated back to him, well, I'm making a film about werewolves, and this is a werewolf party, and uh, it's all a fantasy, and uh, it's a horror film. And the answer comes back from the general, what is a werewolf?
0: <laughs> and
3: and so I, I I I went back to the general. A werewolf is someone who a, a human being who turns into a wolf when there's a full moon. Well, this the general thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard in his life. So he starts roaring with laughter. I was so relieved. And then he said, <laughs> "Well, you've got you've got half an hour to finish your film." And then everyone has to leave three at a time, ten minutes apart, because it's illegal to have a gathering like this, so we filmed that scene so mm-hmm. it's my long uh, winded way again of saying it, the there was an incredible experience making that movie um, oh, thank you <laughs> um but 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 uh that it it helps me understand what some of what happened about because you just told me about Ian Fleming
2: yeah yeah the the, the story mm-hmm. was when 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 they were casting Dr. No uh in early what 6162 uh that Ian Fleming actually uh uh basically went to the studio and said, "You know, Christopher Lee should do this." Now, the thing is, at that point, he'd just done hammer films and so on and so forth, and they didn't think that he was right. And they were looking for someone with more, I guess, sex appeal or whatever you want to call it, you know. And they they ended yeah. up with with Connery, which is a good choice. But but he yeah. actually was was was, you know, um, um, waving a flag for Christopher Lee to take the role. In Amazing, so. tremendous, yeah, And Mike, yeah. yeah. uh, Lord of the. I was rings. just going to say,
4: my experience. Okay. Oh, I was just going to say my experience with seeing this film. I was um, 14 when this came out. I was a young 14-year-old punker, like it described, had the shaved head, mohawk. And I (laughs) saw this movie in the theater, and it was rare to see a film that actually had cool punk scenes in it. And just, like, so this movie was always kind of special because it wasn't too much of that coming out at the time. Anytime they portray punks, they were always goofy goofballs, you know, stupid. This movie kind of like that club scene really handled it beautifully. And, you know, it was like well-received amongst me and all the other punk kids that I knew. So thank you well, for this. Well, that's good.
3: I mean, look, before I made that movie, you didn't see many punks. As you're saying, you didn't see many punks in movies, let alone horror movies. And then that started becoming a uh A, a meme. <laughs> Yes, yeah, and you know uh, uh, the the funny little bit on this is that um, Sybil Jan Sybil Danning was wearing dark glasses, and no one wore dark glasses in yeah. in movies, you know, at night, you know, during at night, blah blah blah. Anyway, the reason she was wearing those glasses is she got conjunctivitis, and oh. um, and she said, "I can't do this scene, Philippe, as Queen of the Werewolves, because I've got conjunctivitis." I said, "Don't worry, just wear dark glasses." You're a queen of the werewolves. You can do anything you like, and and that actually became the poster.
4: Yeah. Mhm. Yeah.
3: Exa- and yeah. No,
4: you, I love that. And then
1: you were the producer, pissed off, Civil Danning, with that interesting end credit scene. <laughs> <laughs> well. God, look, let, it, I.
2: I before we get into that, I just gotta say. Yeah. That's one of the funniest friggin' things. I ever seen in my life. Seriously. <laughs> well, I'd never... Look, that's why, it, that's why it's there. That's why it's there. This is
3: what happened. I had to leave to start another picture before the end credits sequence was done completely. Um, and, I, and I had... I was looking at outtakes, and I saw a few funny expressions, and um, and I thought, oh, look, it would be funny to do it, like, twice. You know, these guys... A gawking at Sybil, and she shows a breast. It's a nice shot of her. So I, I, so I left Hollywood, flew to Australia to start work on Death of a Soldier with James Coburn, and um, I got a call from the uh, editor, and um, it could have been another production person that called, and they said, they said, hey, look, um, John Daly, he's the producer, John Daly. Um, he, he thinks the shot of Sybil showing her breasts is one of the greatest things he's ever seen in the history of cinema. And I said, "Yeah, I said, yeah." And so he'd like me to reprint it like seven, eight times and intercut it. I said, "Well, that's that's going to be hilarious. Yeah, do it. That's really funny. It's got nothing to do with the movie, but it's funny as hell." And so. I I didn't know that seven or eight would I think it turned into seventeen times. Yeah, it was and a, it's yeah. a lot more
2: than seven or eight.
3: Yeah. So that's how that came about. Sybil was very upset. Um um and uh you know, I mean I, I took the easy way out, I told the truth. I said, Sybil, I wasn't there. Um and um but anyway, as it became more and more famous. It's a bit like James Cagney. As it became more and more famous, Sybil came around to it, and now, now of course, it's one of the most famous things she's done. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. No, the other thing is. about <laughs> that, real quick, is is it's not only that, but it's how it's in sync with the music. I'm a musician, so the funny thing is the whole the whole score, everything that just works so well. Whoever yeah. did the editing, you should like give him a. Yeah, it was cut to the music. Yeah. Yep.
1: I think my favorite one is where st- Christopher Lee has a giant grin on his face and it shows the shot is simple. Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, it gets funnier and funnier. Yeah, I mean it gets funnier and funnier. Uh,
4: yeah. And that soundtrack he brought up, that's like a hot item now to find and own if you can get your hands on that soundtrack.
3: Is no. it the the uh, Steve Parsons? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah, that's like a very sought after soundtrack. <laughs>
3: Howling, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. It's 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 sought after a lot. You can find it like on underground ratings. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. And I
1: haven't seen it, but a true crime movie from you after Mad Dog Morgan, starring James Coburn. That just sounds like something I need to track down yesterday.
3: Well, it's a terrific. It's it's a for one of a better word. Compared to my other movies, it's, very, it's a straight film noir. Um, as I called it at the time, it's a film noir in color. And it's a true story um, about a psychopath. Uh, it's almost uh, Hitchcockian in this sense. It's about, about a psychopath who starts strangling. He's a GI, and it's in the middle of the war, so it's a disaster. Uh, Because uh, he's killing local girls He kills three local girls And when they catch him um, He he says he was trying to get their voices out of their throats And anyway, it's a famous trial I won't go on too long about it It's a famous trial And it's important in American military history Because of that um, trial his His defense was that he was insane Well, insanity was not a defense at the time, in court-martials. But because of this incident, insanity became a defense in court-martials under the U.S. military code. So it's a really interesting story. James Coben was fantastic, um, and some really good Australian character actors are in it. The the, the version around here that I've seen is, is, is uh, panned and scanned, unfortunately. It's still okay. It's still good. It's panned and scanned, um, but the film was shot in... Uh, 235 um, Panavision. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Howling 3, the first time I seen it, I hadn't seen any Aussie exploitation films. So most of the jokes went over my head. The second time yep. I had seen it, especially ones like The Chan Jamie Blacksmith and stuff. So when you had him come out and say, Put another shrimp on the barbie, you fuck. The second time, <laughs> I fell on the ground laughing myself to death.
3: Well, well, you know, um, that was obviously more straight out funny that movie. But and and what what really. Uh, um, but it's still a horror film. And one of the producers said to me, Philippe, are you sure this is a horror film? And when he read the script. And I said, look, have you ever seen a marsupial birth? The the embryo undeveloped comes out of the vagina and crawls up into a pouch. And he said, okay, okay, it's horror. It's horror.
2: It's horror. <laughs>
0: um,
3: yeah,
2: I, I also think of it as like anthropological.
3: This film. It is.
2: It, well it is and, and it,
3: also there's, it, it's also got this preservation of the species theme in it with um, right. the fact that they killed all those critters for real the yeah. marsupial wolves they killed them all yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
2: and, and, and the one thing I have to say about this film because <laughs> it's such an odd duck in a lot of ways that it took a long while for it to, to hit here but I must say one thing I worship at the throne of Frank Thring. Oh, thank you. He's, so do I.
0: That makes nice,
2: me so do I. I absolutely love that man, and he is so good as the egotistical director in this. Always makes me laugh.
3: <laughs> you know, he's got a big role in Ben Hur. You know, he sta- he's Pontius Pilate in Ben Hur. Yeah, he he starts a chariot race. He's the most. He tells the funniest, most obscene, blasphemous stories you've ever you've ever heard. And in fact, I, I'm not going to. I'll repeat it to you in person if we ever meet, which I hope we do. I can't <laughs> repeat it now on this. So, it's so obscene, but he he would have the whole crew com- cracked up. Um, I can give you a, 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 a G-rated sample, really.
2: Okay, Um, give us a G-rated, and then you can can, uh, uh, tell us
3: later. Yeah, G-rated. So he, he, one day on a movie set in Melbourne, he didn't show up. And um, so they sent the assistant director. He always showed up. but So they sent the assistant director to his house, and they knocked on the door, nothing. So the guy went around the back. He looked through the window in the kitchen, and he sees Frank Thring naked. Tied, out, tied up and gagged in his kitchen in, on a chair. So he breaks th- into the house through the window and um, uh, takes, a ga- takes a gag out of Frank Thring's mouth, and Frank Thring says, Oh, my God, that was a wonderful weekend.
0: LAUGHTER <laughs>
2: That's great. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now you you got to tell me something because I've done some some research on Frank, and I don't know if this is true or not. People tell me they're two separate people, but there is another Frank Thring supposedly who who directed porn films. Now that's not the same person, is it? No. No,
3: no it's I didn't not. think. So. No, it's not. He can, he actually he was very rich. His father started the Australian film industry and 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 right. produced the first feature films in Australia. And Frank was had a very distinguished theatrical career uh, in London. And he was best man, believe it or not, at the uh, wedding of Laurence Olivier and Vivian Leigh. He was very wow. high up in the in the social oh circles there. Um, but funny as hell, wonderful. I. I which I, 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 I think he was in three films of mine. He's in Mad Dog. Um, he terrified, uh, he terrified uh, Dennis Hopper, by the way, in Mad Dog, because uh, Dennis in his um, uh, alcohol and, uh, and other substance, uh, in, his, in his crazed mind sometimes, in his method acting, he thought that, like in the script, the real Frank Thring might make a tobacco pouch out of his scrotum. So whenever Frank Thring, <laughs> Whenever Frank Thring arrived and if Dennis was there, Dennis would just take off. And and Frank said to me, you know, what, is, what is wrong with that boy? <laughs> Every time I show up, he takes off. Um, but uh, Frank, um, he was a very distinguished actor and... Um, uh, I wish I could tell you one of these stories right now. I can't, but that's, it's uh, but, uh,
2: but, uh, <laughs> well, another case. Oh, you gave There's a I nice will. little little taste of it. Yeah. That'll work. Yeah. <laughs> what a weekend. Yeah, I'll I remember that. <laughs> oh, and you
1: also worked with one of my favorite stuntmen of all time in a Mad Dog Morgan. I don't know how many other ones. That's the great Grant Page.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely great. And he did a very dangerous uh, stunt in that. Um you're setting yourself on fire and jumping off off the cliff into the water in that dream sequence and um it actually went wrong the first time around he had to uh uh there was a, a, another stunt man there who um uh, got burned he was okay He survived thank god but it put me off it put me off uh directing stunt scenes i i, I just don't like it anymore it's just so dangerous
1: I don't see how he jumped backwards the way he did and made it look as beautiful as he did.
3: Well, that's that's Mike Malloy, uh, you know, the director of photography. Malloy had just done Barry; uh, he'd just been the camera operator on Barry Lyndon and Clockwork Orange, so he learned a lot of tricks from Kubrick and the cameraman yeah. on on that. Uh, Mike Malloy was a old family friend of mine. And um, a fantastic DP. Uh, he lives in Australia, and um, yeah, he was—he's a, um, a total
0: Kubrick uh, alumni.
1: How did you get involved with communion?
3: Well, I—I I, uh, short the short version. Uh, Whitley Strieber. I'd known in London. I'd met him in London at the London yeah. School of Film Technique. I think that's what it was called. I, I went there for a day. It was bo- I didn't like it. And, but Whitley was there. And uh, so um, he was a totally unknown guy, as was I. Um, and then years later, um, I was in New York and I saw the book Wolfen Whitley Strieber and I thought I wonder if that's the same guy I knew so I called the publisher and I said oh, my name's Philippe Mora uh, could you ask Whitley Strieber please if he's the Whitley Strieber I knew in London in 1970 and um, I'm now film director and blah 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 anyway it was so Whitley called me and it was like old home week you know Philippe Whitley and we had lunch, and Whitley, uh, I said, what are you doing? And so on and so forth. And Whitley said, well, you know, <coughs> I could tell you, but you might laugh at me. And I said, well, I'm not, not going not to laugh at you, Whitley. But what's the problem? And, he, and then he said, well, if you're not, don't laugh at me. I, I'm not going to laugh at you. He said, well, I'm, I've been abducted by little blue men. And he told me the whole story and it was really difficult not to laugh i did not laugh and um um I, he said what do you think i should do and i said well i think you need to see a psychiatrist and i meant it and i and i and, and you should write this down write 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 about your experience and um and we could make a movie and so um that that all came to pass. So Whitley did write it. I was the first person that uh, he sent the, the the manuscript to, and um, I went to visit the cabin um, that features in the book, and um, and then and then I couldn't get the money. This is amazing. I couldn't get the money. It wasn't a bestseller yet. I couldn't get the money to make a film. I was going to the studios. I even went to David Putnam, who ran Columbia then and, and uh, the reaction which just absurd coming from Hollywood the reaction was oh no we don't want to make this we don't believe it and I said well what do you mean you don't believe it since when do you believe anything in movies what's that got to do with it no no we think it's a hoax and blah 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 so then of course the book comes out and it's the number one bestseller on the non-fiction list of the New York Times which was mind-bending non-fiction that caused a bit of an uproar, so it was moved to the fiction list, where again it was number one. At that point, I was able to raise the money independently, um, with a guy called Ed Simons from a company in London. They had they or oh, they had done uh, they'd done a Howling movie with me. They'd funded the Howling movie and they'd made money, so they they thought that you know they went with me again. So. Um, That's what happened. Uh, And then we cast uh, Chris Walken, and um, to use that uh, well-worn phrase, the rest is history.
1: Mm -hmm. Looking at the outtakes on the elite disc of Communion, it seems like Walken was a handful on the set. Uh, A
3: good handful. Yeah, but he was funny. And look, I encourage, if actors are good... And it only works if they're good and they have charisma. It, I do encourage them to um, improv, and um, and I did with with Chris. Now that course agitated uh, Whitley Strieber um, uh, initially, and then I, you know, I said to to Whitley, look, Christopher Walken's. A, Artist in his own right, we're not making a documentary. You've got, we have to let Christopher do his thing because that's that's what he does. That's why we hired him. So um, um, Whitley thought Chris Walken was making fun of him, which he wasn't. He was just creating a character. Uh, he was being entertaining. Um, so um, Chris was funny as hell, you know, um, and. Of course, the anal, notorious anal probe <laughs> was the source of a lot of uh, off-screen humour. Um, I had said to Whitley Strieber, by the way, because he wrote that in he wrote that in the script. And it's pretty close to the script, all this, despite the improv on occasion. But I uh, I had said to Whitley, Whitley, you sure you want to, me to film this anal probe scene? Because I'm not trying to be funny, but this is going to follow you around. And, um, Whitley said, no, no, that's what it was like. No, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. You, no, go for it. I said, well, you better get, do a, let's, let's get an artist, uh, to do and describe the anal probe to them. I like, cause my, my problem as director is I didn't want Whitley to turn around and say I wasn't like that. Um, which, uh, sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't, but he, I got him to approve all the way down the line, all the details like that. So we had to, I showed him the anal probe and I said, was it like that Whitley? Yes, that's exactly what it was like. Um, and so, um, um <laughs> so when we, uh, when we filmed that, that, um, I'm cutting the story short because it's, it's, it's too long. But the, the anal probe in the movie cost $50,000 to make because it was, you know, like a snake. It had to move like a snake and all this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, when the little people in blue suits approach Christopher, who was half naked in the, in the scene where this occurs, um, and they're carrying the huge anal probe, um, um, I should j- just jump back a little bit. I wanted Whitley to approve it. So when he we, in the special effects shop, he came with his wife. And when they when the uh, effects guys brought the probe out, his wife said, uh, um, "Whitley, you never told me it was that big." No. And and Whitley said, "It was terrible, man It was terrible." And Cut to where the film's being promoted. Whitley's on the Johnny Carson show, which was a big deal in those days. And I thought, gosh, if Whitley says... If Johnny Carson asks him about the anal probe, uh, my career's over. I mean, that's just going to be... You know, because he's a comedian, and he's just going to mock, mock the thing. Anyway, Johnny Carson says... um we have Whitley Strieber here, best-selling author of The Hunger and *Wolfen*. And uh, so, Whitley, I understand the uh, aliens gave you an anal probe. And I thought, oh, God, no. And, um, and Whitley says just what he'd said to his wife. He said, Johnny, it was terrible. It was just was, It, it was just terrible and um, and Johnny Carson you can see Johnny Carson going I've got to get this guy off so he <laughs> said well what was it like working with Christopher Walken so that's sort of the story I've messed the story up a little bit but that's some of the adventures on that film
0: yeah. um, and, what's and I was, intervie- I, I was interviewed
3: it. by the what? Yeah.
1: is that after communion the anal probe became part of
3: UFO lore. I know, I know. It's incredible. I know, and it became uh, a meme. And it's 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 no. on Wikipedia. It's on Wikipedia. It's on. Uh, it's in South Park. It 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 apparently yeah. inspired the first episode of. Um, I think it's South Park. When uh, yeah, what's it? Another South animated show. Anal probe. Yeah, I mean the anal probe features on those shows. Um. And it, it was mentioned in, uh, you know, Men in Black, and it became, uh, as you say, it became part of the
0: folklore.
4: Um, yeah. Did anyone ever believe him? About yeah. the, the incident? Okay.
3: Yes, absolutely. At, at a serious level. I was interviewed by the Defense Intelligence Agency about it. Oh. They, wow. They, they asked I was on a flight back from San Antonio and um and from San Antonio and uh, to LA and a guy sat next to me and he looked like Robert Redford right out of a CIA movie central casting and um and he started asking me questions about uh, he said oh, communion's the best film made about alien abduction and the way he was talking I thought he was a journalist, so I said, "Excuse me, are you a journalist?" And he said, "No, sir. Uh, I'm from the Defense Intelligence Agency." And he opened his jacket, and he had a big badge with an eagle. And um, I didn't know what to say, uh, so I said, "Oh, I didn't know you guys had badges." He said, "Oh, yes, we have badges, sir." And then he asked, and then he asked me, "Have I met any aliens?" I said, "No, I've never met any aliens." And he asked me, "Do you think did Whitley Strieber meet aliens?" I said I don't think so. I think I, I, no. I didn't say I don't think so. I said I don't know, but I believe he thinks he has. Um, so yeah, it it got very serious. Apparently, Reagan, who was present at the time, apparently Reagan. This is uh, maybe a, a, a apocryphal, but a couple of another guy, a UFO writer, wrote about this at, Uh, Reagan held up a copy of the book, Communion, at a meeting and said, I saw UFOs in California when I was governor, and we've got to get to the bottom of this. And um, that started a whole, you know, the the U.S. government's been investigating UFOs forever. They still are.
4: Um, Well, recently online, they released footage saying that it's from the government saying these are UFOs in our stratosphere. So I don't know how true it is, but it's still going on to this day.
3: That's right. So, so yeah. So communion in that regard was taken seriously, especially because it was a bestseller. I think yeah. the guy who was questioning me, very nice guy by the way, uh, he, he he really what he was really what he really wanted to know is whether it was a hoax or not. Um, and uh, obviously, it wasn't a hoax in as much as Whitley believed it. Um but the film you know the 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 in the book the original book, and I was really true to the book in this sense that Willie's not sure whether he's imagining it or it really happened, so that's the that's the tack I took in the film okay, yeah. you know and, like a a, a a incredible case of writer's
0: block,
1: yeah, and the late art Bell who was uh Host of Coast to Coast Overnight, one of the biggest UFO shows, alt-theory shows, held up the community and he says, this is to what us UFO conspiratists are. This is one of our Bibles.
3: Right. I didn't know
4: that. I didn't know that. Well, everything we, we know sh- about... I was just going to say, everything we know about alien abduction is from that book in your film. So yeah. everyone else is just yeah. copying.
2: It, well, yeah. you know, no, there's had, also it,
4: Fire in it, the it, Sky,
2: too. Don't forget that one. No, that yeah, one's yeah, Fire in the Sky. Uh, there was
3: an earlier, there was a earlier abduction story or Disappearing Time story about a, a couple I've forgotten. They made a. Uh, it was yeah, a TV Betty and Barney Hill. That's it. Yeah, it so had there was that, but, but, but
1: the male was played by uh, James Earl Jones.
3: That's right. So there, there was a little bit of precedent, but Communion's been—if we can use the word—ripped off so many times since we made it. You know. Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, endlessly ripped off, and the alien face was, was been ripped off uh, many, many times, um, and. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's amazing, you know. The the I don't need to tell you guys; you study it. But the 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 power of films into into the culture is is just amazing, yeah. and and you never know what's yeah. going to get traction and what isn't. No, that's
2: very true. Very true.
1: And I've always seen these people. It's more in old olds where the younglings are talking oh. about. Oh, they made these films to look bad on purpose, and. All the scratches and stuff were on purpose. I'm like, if you talk to any of the guys who are making films in the '70s and '80s, and you said something like that to them, there's a good chance they would smack you out of thinking you're a pure
3: idiot. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I mean, you. Well, now you
3: know. know, Now they even have. Do you know what? This is funny. You know? Do you know what a hair in the gate is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like in the projector. And, yeah, right, you saw, you see I film, eight
4: millimeter films, yeah.
3: Yeah, well, there's even a program now. There's a, a CGI program called Hair in the Gate that you can put on your movies and and you can choose the size of the hair in the gate, how it moves, it's going from top to bottom, how long is it there, to to recreate the so-called film, the theater, theatrical experience. That is pretty funny.
4: Yeah, I think with Rodriguez, um, when he did uh, the Grindhouse films with Tarantino, they called the digital process the dragging it, dragging the film through the pr- parking lot process to make it look yeah. scratched up, aged, and cut badly. So right. That's mm-hmm. what they do now to give it that authentic feel to these films.
3: I know it's silly stuff, really.
4: Um, yeah, back in the back in the day, they tried to make films look great. The film process, though you know, did some damage to it, and it wasn't the director or the filmmakers' fault. That's just how film was.
3: That's right. And plus, you well, kept
1: inventing. Being able to say that you took like this is just saying I got like fifty thousand dollars in this movie, but it looked like a million dollar studio film.
0: Right.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's the old joke. You, I can make a ten million dollar film look like a one million dollar film.
0: But you don't <laughs> want
1: them to know you can, because that's all they'll give you is the, the lower amount.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's I was weird. going to say in, Invinci- in Captain in-, in Captain Invincible, <laughs> there's this old newsreel footage, and um, and I said to the lab, you know. Please make this look fucked up. Pardon the French, just make this look like really old footage and they and and they just they they basically wouldn't do it. They said we can't do that. that's how that's like blasphemy um, hmm. and uh but anyway uh it it looked good the old newsreel footage
1: yeah, and a lot of these after uh the, Communion, I haven't heard, but they sound good, like Art Deco Detective, Pterodactyl Woman for Beverly Hills, Snyder Prejudice.
0: That's a funny one. Te- yeah, yeah. Or
3: Snide and Prejudice is one of my better films. I think you would like that. It's a very good, very good genre cast in there. Well, As Rene, Rene Mc...
2: Arber I'm a huge fan of Rene Arber Oh, he
3: this is he
2: he's fantastic in
3: this, and so is Angus Macfadyen, who was Robert the Bruce in Braveheart.
2: Right, and then you got Claudia Christian and Jeffrey Combs, Richard Edson. Jeffrey yeah. Combs
3: fabulous. He's really good in this. Yeah, check that one out, guys. I think you'd enjoy it. After this conversation, I know you will. Okay. Well, so, Jeffrey so
2: Combs. Yeah. That's yes, because you know we're we're getting into some of uh, the more direct video stuff that you did in the 90s and onwards give us a little like background on what you're doing now and and how do people get to see your films and so on and so forth and let's you know and then suggest particular films that you think we ought to watch well if you well uh, look that's
3: that's tough I think um, because I you know they're all my children so I like most of them but at least <laughs> ten of those, at least ten of those movies are easily available on Amazon. At least ten of them,
0: yeah. right okay. now.
3: Uh, I think uh, if you, I mean, I'm very. We didn't talk about Swastika. But that that's a really important film. That's when I had the unbelievable luck, really, of finding Eva Braun's home movies, Hitler's mistress. I found Eva Braun's home movies in the Pentagon in oh, nineteen seventy. In 1972. You haven't heard of it? No.
1: no, I have
0: heard
3: of it. Oh, oh, guys, you've got to check that one out. Swastika. That one's new to me. Uh, that's yeah, a, i got to uh, that uh, Available. There's a Kino Lorba version. It's available um, on Amazon, Amazon Prime. And it's the rise of Hitler in, in the same format as Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? It's found footage. And it, wow. it took a long time to make it. And... Um, It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1973 and caused an uproar because no one had seen Hitler um, in colour, close-up, filmed cinema verite by his mistress, for God's sake. And it freaked people out because what had been seen previously was Hitler in black and white shot by the Nazis. So it was all propaganda footage. And now but suddenly... He is this guy, and suddenly he realized he was actually a human being. He didn't come from Jupiter, which was the point of the film. It's much worse that he was a a, a, a human being. It makes the whole thing even more. Anyway, so I'm very proud of that film. It's still controversial, but um,
1: people um, want to know Hitler. They don't want to know Adolf.
3: That's right. That's a a good way of putting it. Um, And then, Brother Can You Spare a Dime is available uh um communion i think is a really interesting movie um and it's getting more and more it's thir- i i can't believe it but i made that 30 years ago and there was recently a really good review of it 30 years later coming out of the uk explaining the film and its effect its effect on pop films and um but the more recently, I'd say Snyder and, uh, 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 Snyde and Prejudice* is and Prejudice* the Hitler theme again, but it's theatrical, and it's the it shows the rise of Hitler um, through the device of uh, René Aubergeonois treating this man who thinks he's Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, like a really interesting movie, I think. Um, and then the the ones I'm working on now are hybrid documentary, fictional, uh, you know, the man who thought he was Salvador Dali and the the hunchback bee of the hunchback bee of Notre Dame. Uh, they're kind of hybrid hybrid movies. Um, and, um, and there's a comedy called The Mystery of the Reclining Nude, which is uh, delving into why are there reclining nudes in the whole history of art and why did every famous artist paint reclining nudes from Modigliani to Picasso to everybody? Um, So uh, that's, um, after speaking to you guys, I better include Sybil in that.
0: (laughs) And,
5: (laughs)
1: And what's funny is I could just see two reasons for them doing that. One a reclining chair would be more comfortable on the model, and two they sold.
3: <laughs> I think the latter. As as I think I that's what, I think it's it. Knows. You know, to hell with the Renaissance. The nudes, yeah. the nudes are selling. Yeah. Now people like naughty bits. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, them. I mean,
1: always
2: like. I
3: mean, naughty no, bits. that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Leonardo, I mean, Michelangelo, look at it
2: in terms of in terms of film and the exploitation and you, you talk, you know, I grew up, uh, in, a, uh, working at a, uh, a, a drive-in in the seventies and you get, get people like, uh, uh, Oh, Russ Myers and, and all these people. I mean, they all uh, sex sells always period. Yeah.
3: It does. And it does in, it does in literature. Look at Philip Roth, Portnoy's complaint. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's it's just where you kind of uh, come in, come in where where you start climbing the ladder. It's always there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I and think it's always know, inspired. If the only one that you, uh, if you only listen to this show, or you've only seen Howling Two, Howling Three, or The Beast Within by Felipe Mora, look into more of his stuff. His stuff is eclectic and good.
5: Yeah.
2: Oh, thank you absolutely thank you and you know what but, I, I have to say this and taking a look at the IMDB page you certainly keep busy my friend you've got you know well, several yeah, no, posts I, look, I,
3: I, I try to and as I said to you guys I, I don't know what else to do although I could be a good head waiter <laughs> but,
4: well I think you're a better filmmaker
3: <laughs> well thank you yeah thank you well as a film but, fan uh,
4: you just give us so much to cover like some directors just stick with one genre. You give us, as fans, so much different visions to go through. So thank you for that.
3: Well, you know, well, thank you for saying that. And, and, but, and the reason for it, there's a reason for it, is that any movie usually takes a year, you know, any movie. And the thing is, I didn't want to get typecast. I mean, I noticed how so many actors and directors actually get typecast, and they keep making the same film. And I, yeah. I'd never wanted to do that. I, 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 You know, I get interested in different subjects. and um, But uh, I'm really looking forward to you guys seeing uh, Snide and Prejudice. And, and let, let uh, me know what I, you I think of it.
2: Okay. Let Absolutely. me know what you think of it. Absolutely.
3: You will do so. Uh, you've got my yeah, email.
0: I've, uh, yeah,
1: I've seen that with podcast too, at the 500 episodes. You see podcasts that just focus on... Narrow view, just on one genre and stuff. I like proud to say. People ask me, "Well, what kind of film do you like?" I said, "I'm a movie slut."
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too.
4: I'm a I'm a teen in and, the and '80s, people. so we always call ourselves video junkies.
3: Yeah, I'm I, a. I've uh,
4: nice uh, got a fancier
3: word for you. I got a fancier word for you guys. Film gourmands.
2: Gourmands. Gourmands. Today, it's like you like different types of cheese. Okay, never mind. Yeah. That's an inside mm-hmm. joke. Yeah, okay. But, uh, well, with Carl and
1: his love film, he's more like the Grand Bouffet of us all three.
2: Oh, that's good. The Grand
3: Bouffet. Now, that is a funny movie.
2: I love that movie. Love that yeah. film. I'm a big Marco Ferrari fan. Yeah. yeah. But that's the one thing we do here. You know, we, we, we love to talk to, to film directors and writers. Who do different things, and plus also, you know, we love our exploitation, we love our our, our, our general uh, films, we love everything, westerns.
0: Yeah, you know, it doesn't
2: matter. You know, to me, they're all films, and they're all worthwhile at least to to watch once and see if you like them, and then and then to dig even deeper and find things that that you know people don't know about, and, and say, hey, watch this. So don't think I'm not going to go through your stuff and find it and, and like, tell people to watch. No question about it, believe.
1: Yeah, that is nothing that makes me happier. When I look at the sub and it's
4: like, you mean there's more? Oh, (laughs) yeah. Hell yeah.
3: Um, I'm trying to think. um, You asked me what uh, my favorite films are. I think you said... uh, um, but it's, it is very difficult to, to pinpoint. I mean, the um, the compilation films or found foot, the collage films are kind of interesting because that was um, uh, innovative. So right. uh, that was kind of good. Um, I've oh. been looking. I've been m- m- messing around with 3D actually, uh, and I haven't. Um, I shot some stuff in 3D, but it's um, it's just difficult for people to see stuff in 3d, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, there you go.
0: Okay.
1: Well, thank <laughs> you for you... being on Felipe. it's really been an honor and I'm finally glad to be able to pin you down to get on this show.
3: Well, I'm so glad you, you did. And, um, uh, and I'm, uh, Honored to be on the show 500. I know that's a distinction. So uh, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your enthusiasm. And it's just great to talk to people who love movies. As you say, any genre.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to take the... the, We are uh, cineast gourmands, and I'm going to run with that, okay? (laughs) I like it. I'm taking that from you. (laughs) I like it. I do, too. Very much so. Uh, Again, my my thanks, Philippe, for you being on. This has been such a pleasure. And and, uh, I I must say, I got to say one thing, uh, is that when it comes to uh, marsupial werewolf movies, I think that is like the greatest uh, sequel of that series. And I think you did something really special. So, well thank so you very much you know that. That, I love that that thank you
3: very much you know if you're asked to do a sequel as a director you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't if you don't make it like the first one the fans don't like it and if you make a completely different one they, they don't like it so I just decided to go ape shit and make it completely different
1: <laughs> it was like it was definitely shit film so but
2: I love ape shit films so there you go
1: uh, thank smart you ass- well, why would they marsupials instead of just wolves? And I said, it's set in Australia. Why would they have That's right. non-marsupials in Australia?
3: <laughs> That's right. And then we had two gags with that. We said it was it should have been called a womb with a view.
0: <laughs> I love it.
3: We, we thought we, we'd get the classy crowd in with that, a womb with a view. And uh, that the film was uh, tongue-in-pouch. <laughs>
0: That's
3: great. That you have a great sense of humor. I'm not good
0: that right now. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> but, you know, maybe I should still make a womb with a view. Yeah.
0: We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for
2: being Okay, on. guys,
3: thank you. I I'll, I'll let you guys go. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, really.
2: Pleasure a a ours. great pleasure having you on, please Thank you very much.
3: Okay, take care. Yeah.
2: You too. Bye-bye.
3: Stay stay safe.
1: Okay.
4: Yes, you too.
1: And I and I can tell you we did not plan on doing 500 of these, did we, Carl?
4: No,
2: we didn't. We we just did it. You're
1: driving down the road and all of a sudden someone's like, hey, look at the speed speedometer. I'm like, I'm not doing fast. And then you look down and you're going 100 down the freeway.
2: Well, you you know, we talk about 500 shows. We should make this clear. That's 500 shows on Blog Talk. Yeah. How many shows do we do on Hoobazoo?
1: About 60 or 70 on Hoobazoo, and then we did about 40 or 50 on the old ones, which the first ones I'm glad are gone. If anyone digs them up, i said it before and i say it again. I will bash your head in with a ball bat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it
2: looks like I'm going to have well, to do I'm some just digging. Just like a fine wine, we get better with age. <laughs> what can we say? <laughs> and
1: our ass turns a vinegar, too.
2: Yeah that too.
1: <laughs> and it's nice to get Fred in here. He he devalues himself yeah, enough, enough, but yeah, he knows his stuff.
4: I'm just happy the guys yeah. brought me into. <laughs> yeah. And, and Fred,
2: it's yeah. it's a pleasure to have you on. I mean, you know, we're finally getting getting a a chance to connect after all these years. Yeah, I so know that's very <laughs> <It's cool>. weird. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it <was> very weird.
0: <laughs>
4: yeah, and uh, it hadn't happened sooner.
1: Fred's an 80s punker and Carl's a 70s punker.
2: Nice. <laughs> yeah, I actually I actually um uh ran and was a, a program director of a college radio station. Uh back oh, from so 75 sweet. to 79. So yeah, oh, man. Yeah.
4: See, I was just um a skate punker from the uh Eighties, I guess we were considered like what second wave, like the second wave British punk and early American hardcore. So, so,
2: so you're talking what about eighty four to eighty seven,
4: or? Um, no, I was well, pretty much. Um, I was born in seventy one, so probably. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. You. So, yeah. We're talking like eighty four. You're thirteen years old. Yeah.
4: yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I was about died. then, but I mean I got into it early. I got into it like when I was like 9 or 10 because I went I remember specifically okay. going from like Sesame Street to Ramones, Sex Pistols, Dead Kennedys. Okay. Okay, so you were there at that point.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, and yeah, I still have I was, my original uh, I was I was a bit older. Um uh but yeah. Yeah, I mean um I I lived in New York in the early '80s, uh, and so it was more. Used to go to CBGBs, but that time, by that time, the real punk had sort of left, and you were you yeah. had the stiff artist, you had Ian Dury and and all those guys come in, and I was a huge Ian Dury fan. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and Joe Jackson back, in, and, and and of course uh, Gang of Four. Oh, a huge band mm. Gang of War. Shriek back, uh, uh early uh, XCC, you know. Yeah, see, I was uh, a street
4: punker, because where I grew up in New Jersey, it was all industrial parks. So skateboarding okay. was just, like, natural to me. So I was more like the SST label bands, like Black okay. Flag, um, yeah, Worm, yeah, it was, was like not, which like that.
2: Yeah, okay, which I got that's into that's later. Though. I found later.
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was like I the gotta later ask, generation. Where in, in Jersey? Where uh, in Jersey? I'm in the North area, like North New Jersey, Irvington, Maplewood, that area.
2: Oh yeah, I know where that. Is. I I lived uh, before I came here in New York. I lived in uh, in uh, 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 Raritan Valley. So uh, you know, I I, yeah. I lived in. Oh, I can't think of the name right now. God damn it. Uh... <laughs> Oh, well, never mind. <sighs>
1: yeah, when I so was like, to everyone my... here in Tennessee were listening to like uh, hair metal and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I <laughs> that was, was like <laughs> bringing fear and stuff to listen to at school and just horrifying these portal hair brand creeps.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I if like... I go back, I, I got to tell this story since we're talking about music, okay? Right. So. I was born in 58, okay? And I, I was a kid uh, growing up, and my parents would just let us listen to basically classical music and uh, and uh, Broadway. So we're allowed to start buying our own music. So I think I was like eight or nine years old, 1967, and I buy Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Ooh, and I think album. for two days straight, At the loudest I could do it on the little portable uh, thing I played, be careful with that axe, Eugene. I think the third day, my mother took that album and threw it in the garbage. (laughs) And I'm not joking. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I went through three of those, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that... that, See, one thing I found is... uh, Music was somewhat classical. I could argue and play it loud, and they couldn't do anything about it. See, I, I learned how to get around the rules. So yeah, there you it go. Was
1: weird that they never did care about music in this house. So I could, like, go in my sister's room and she'd be playing Kiss, go into my mom, where my mom was, and she'd be listening to 70s Country. And then I would go with my dad, and he'd be playing, like, Low rider oldies, and Bowtown and stuff.
4: That's like my parents, yeah.
1: It's just like yeah, my mom was from music Texas, sensibilities. Yeah. I'm like, you mean people don't listen? People don't listen to more than one kind of music?
4: <laughs> Apparently not <laughs> to a lot of people, huh. yeah. Yeah, my punk music came from my sister. Because my sister went through an uh, age where she got out of punk and went straight into like Motley Crue and hair metal. Oh, oh
2: God, help us. Never so mind.
4: Go ahead. She was getting, ri- she was getting rid of her records. And I was like, and I'm sitting in my room, listening to, you know, Sesame street and children's records. And I was like, I'll take them. My sister's like, my sister and her irresponsible self was like, yeah, sure. Take them. And the first record I put on was the Ramones. And I still have it to this day. And when I heard that, I threw all my Sesame street records out and that's all I listened to was like Ramones and I grabbed her dead Kennedy's. I grabbed her. She had the original nevermind the Bullock sex pistols and just played them over and over. Oh yeah. And then when I was like old enough to get like some allowance money, I'd run to Alwicks and, um, Elizabeth and I'd buy like suicidal tendencies and all the punk bands that were out at that time. <laughs> I just ran through. I was like punk rock. That's all I knew. I was just like, I need punk rock because there's no internet to look stuff up. So they yeah. were just like, oh, okay, come here. And they just, like, let me buy different records.
1: <laughs> what was that level you adult put out uh, Black Flag? SST.
0: Yeah, I that found was SST, at yeah. And one of my
1: hex, it was like a local department store, I found something called an SST sampler, one of the SST sampler tapes.
4: Oh, yeah, Blasting content. right? And I just right? looked, and there was a like- volume one.
1: Yeah, I looked, and it's like, skate or die. Da, 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 da. I looked, and I was like, yeah. well, it's only $2. Mind blown.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the SST comps were uh, Blasting Concepts. They had a couple volumes of those. They were great. That had, like, early versions of, like, um, St. Vitus on them that, because they kept changing singers. So, yeah, no, they were great. <laughs>
1: Yeah, me and uh, Fred really bonded Carl over Return of the Living Dead.
2: Yes. Well, it's one one of the great. Uh, it's one of the great uh, um, uh, punk rock films.
4: It really is. Yeah. yeah. It is. Yeah. No, and they handled it right, which um, Steve and I did a podcast about that film, and I think yeah, you and I bonded did, uh... after. Our...
5: Yeah.
4: We bonded over the fact that when I told my story on Facebook about how I got my original Return of the Living Dead poster, and you were like, oh, I got to have Fred on one of my shows.
1: <laughs> it, it was, no, it's way. We've known each other since back then. I'm like, I got to have this guy as my friend. He lo- he stole a poster. <laughs> what he did is that he was at the theater, and, well, you tell the story. your story.
4: Okay, so I, did you hear the story, uh,? Yeah, no, no, no! It doesn't matter okay. if I heard it They haven't heard it out in the airwaves So go ahead So back when Return of the Living Dead came out My aunt worked <clears throat> at a movie theater Called the Castle Theater in Irvington And it was like right in the middle of the ghetto No one went there Here I am this little punk rock kid with a mohawk I, I heard about the film I went in to see it my, I used to get it for free My aunt would just let me in And I sat through I think two showings of it <laughs> And I was so amped and psyched up, I walked out of the theater and saw the poster. You know, they had the posters out front and behind the glass. I smashed the marquee, pulled the poster out, and started running down the street with it. (laughs) Wow. And I still have the poster to this day in a frame in my apartment.
1: (laughs) Oh, and also, uh, uh... Fred posted about Born Losers and this guy's like, what's Born Losers about? Yeah. Then, man, Fred chewed out that guy like, Goodness, you don't know who Billy
4: Jack was? That's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, when people go, what's Billy Jack? I I, I want to punch him in the head. Yeah, Billy
2: Jack. Just so,
4: Losers, so he doesn't go to Washington, man. okay?
0: Yeah. You, oh, God, <laughs> no.
2: Please. But, yeah,
1: just and me and Carl's movie is Blood Freak.
4: Ooh, yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: That's how we got this mess started.
2: Well, let me, let me <laughs> explain that to Fred. So, as I mentioned briefly, I worked at a – I was 14 years old. We moved to Bradford, and one of our customers was the projectionist at the local drive-in. And he said, hey, your son could work, you know, and do this, and I need some things set up. And and he likes movies and so on and so forth. Well, my parents said, sure, not knowing what kind of movies they ran. So I think it was like the second week I was there, they ran 2,000 Maniacs, Blood Freak. And I'm not sure what the third one was. It was, uh, I think it might be the Gruesome Twosome, or, uh, um, but I no, I wasn't a group of two. But it was another fellow. Oh,
1: yeah,
2: that's it. Thank you, thank you. And the first one was Blood Freak, and of course it was one of the first times I ever had marijuana, and I just laughed my ass off, and I've loved that movie ever since. So Stephen, we met over the net and and uh, through one's Chop. And Stephen, Stephen, I found out through the rape bite he was going to do Blood Freak at, 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 at that. So I, like, kept battering him. You got to have me on. Got to have me, I got to do Blood Freak. I got to do Blood Freak. <laughs> no, you don't understand. I have to do this. So finally he said, oh, it's the only way I'm going to shut the fucker up. So he said Yes. <laughs> And we did it. Well, with actually, Danae the reason Dunning. I didn't
1: answer is because I didn't know if the show was going to last that long. Until about three weeks before, I'm like, "Okay, this is going to actually happen." I got Carl locked in. Okay, we're doing it.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and so anyway, so we did it. And, and like, what was it? It was less than a week later. I get this phone call. He says, "Like, uh, you want to be my co-host?" It's like, "Are you yeah, fucking just, kidding me?" We're in. <laughs> it's
1: hard to find someone you just. You know, can just riff with
4: Yeah Yeah, most people I talk to When I start talking film They get like a a blank look over their face Like, I I have no idea (laughs) And
1: the first one I asked Fred to be on uh, Carl was a Friday the 13th one Because I'm lazy I'm like, how can I do a Friday the 13th film And not do any work Hey Fred, what are you doing?
4: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a well, you know, another reason
2: is that's one, one series of films I'm not going to do. I'm not a fan yeah. at all. Well, see, I was no born in no the 13th.
4: So. <laughs> I've, been I've never those understood films since... that, and I've seen that so many
1: times on horror films. Someone brings up, hey, generic long-running horror franchise, and someone goes, well, I just didn't like it. It wasn't for me.
4: What's wrong with you? You're sick. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not a purist either. Like, you're into what you're into. I'm, I never, like, judge people, unless it's Billy Jack.
1: <laughs> well, it isn't purist. It's just that we're a family, and we need to be, you know, be yeah. a family. Not if you don't like certain things I can't associate you with. There's no use for it.
4: Well, you Agreed. were just telling a story yesterday about um, people are like, oh, if you if you don't watch real crime movies or death movies, you're not a real person. Yeah,
1: fake snuff like, movies, what does that you're mean? not hard. Yeah, oh,
0: please.
4: I <laughs> actually was on one of those pages. It was called, like, Gore Punks or something like that. And it's like, yeah, they talk about Serbian film, they talk about 120 Days but if you bring up anything else, oh, that's so weak, that's gay. Oh, why are you bringing that film up? It's like, all right, bye, guys. It's like, you know, purists. And though I do
1: think uh, that both of those films, which they talk about, they're like, those films are gay. But the films that you champion, sir, have underage sodomy upon male people.
4: Yeah.
0: What does that say about you?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just silly. The whole, like, you know purity thing with movies, like, oh, you don't like this one? Well, how can you call yourself a fan? It's like, because I have different tastes than you, you know?
0: Yeah.
4: And
1: that's another reason why me and Carl work is because we don't get along film-wise. If that makes
2: sense. No, we don't. I mean, there are certain things that we definitely agree agree with. Yeah. So there are certain things like The Simple Dwarf. I ain't fucking watching that shit.
1: <laughs> he has dwarfed And then of oh, course
2: it. tell him tell him the one that you know, the the flowing uh wheels fields of wheat. Tell him about that.
1: Oh yeah, the Malik joke.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well
0: Yeah. <laughs> no. And that okay.
1: comes from Ben Wheatley on a field in England. He has that scene in scene there called where he has that and his producer gives him, he says, oh, is that your Ozu shot? And he goes, are you stupid? That's my Malik shot.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yep. Yeah, if you don't
1: watch all genres, all you're doing is missing out.
4: Absolutely. Well, I used to freak my friends out because we would watch like Howling 2 and then I'd pop in Man in the Moon. And they're like, what's this? This drama shit. I'm like, "Yeah, shut up. It's good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't you want to, want to watch it's, Yeah. It's just...
4: <laughs> I need a romance film once in a while. Shut up. <laughs> Leave me alone.
0: Yeah. A romance I film. We were like, just I, talking like about
2: really. that. We were talking about uh, one of our favorite uh <sighs> Oddball directors of oddball romantic
4: films. What, Man in the Moon? You were seriously talking about that?
2: Yeah, we were just talking about that today. Weren't we, Stephen? And who are we talking about? Because we're going to be talking about it next week.
0: Yeah. Oh, in 1984.
1: Yeah, choose me. I just ordered the Twilight
4: Time uh, DVD for it. (laughs) Uh,
2: Alan Rudolph. Check anything he's done. Uh, yeah. He's really it's oddball sad. And we love him
1: Most Divine fans haven't seen Alan Rudolph's Trouble in Mind If you guys are a Divine fan You haven't seen Trouble in Mind You're missing out We're going in overtime in 10 seconds But we'll be done quick soon Imagine uh, Fred, a movie That has Divine in the Straight World Playing a gangster
4: Oh, wow. I got to see that. And a scary (laughs)
1: motherfucker, too. It's one of my favorite lines ever in noir. You know who I am? I'm the man you don't want to get out of this chair. Because if I get out of this chair, shit happens. And when shit happens, it's never nice.
0: (laughs) And he speaks it in that Uh, tone,
1: too. He doesn't go over the top. He just speaks it like a matter of fact. If I have to get up out of this chair, you're dead.
4: Huh. Yeah, that's that's one that I missed. i got to see that one now. Oh. And we're going to talk about Choose Me, which is one of the most
2: oddball, wonderful, strange uh, 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 romantic comedies you've ever seen. Yeah. Sean F. B. F. Bill uh uh, uh
0: Keith Can't Carradine, her name
2: right now. Yeah, Ray Bob Oh, and Warren.
1: Too. Keith Carradine. Keith Carradine plays a guy who breaks out of a mental asylum who has an natural ability of making every woman he meets fall in love with him.
4: What film is this? Choose, Choose me. me. Hmm. Another one I haven't seen I got to see now well this is the
2: guy Alan Rudolph is 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 uh, was a protege of uh, Robert Altman now Robert Altman's my favorite yeah. director of all time and whereas Altman looked at the human condition in ensemble casts uh, uh, Rudolph was the romantic so he goes in a different direction than 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 uh, uh, Altman so there's you can tell that they're connected because he does right. deal with ensemble casts and so on and so forth, yeah. but it's wonderful stuff. Um, one of my favorite movies of his is *Made in Heaven*, which is uh, uh, Timothy Bottoms, who goes off uh, to find his famous fortune and basically dies trying to save this woman from a uh, uh, from a car wreck, and he goes up to heaven and falls in love. But she goes back uh, to to Earth, so he's got to go back to Earth, and the whole thing, all of heaven, is run by Emmett, who is Deborah Winger in drag, uh, drinking, uh, and Drag, drinking and smoking uh, uh, cigars. And I'm not joking. It's Deborah Winger and Drag <laughs> with cigars.
0: <laughs>
2: um, am I joking, Stephen?
0: No,
1: he's not. That's he likes taking a semi-normal situation and then putting in something very fucking bizarre. Yeah.
0: Opening up, opening, uh, opening. Tomorrow we're going to
1: be recording one of the most unique road movies ever come out of the '80s, and one of the first films of the '80s to really create the art film hit. Mm -hmm. As we noted in the 90s and beyond. And that would be Vimbender's Paris, Texas.
2: And it's one of my all time favorite films, top 10. Easy. Easy. Love that film.
1: And Tuesday, uh, Carl's on his show on the DL. He's going to be doing. uh, a tribute to Fred Willard.
2: Nice. Yep and you'll be joining me for that, Stephen. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, I want you there. Uh yeah, but we'll do that on the DLN. Uh and then and then Thursday, what are we doing?
1: Uh, Fred, what if I said early nineteen eighties, USA Channel and Ants, what I say those three words, what movie would you immediately think of?
4: What was the last word?
1: Ants. A N T S Ants? Yeah.
4: Oh, uh Empire of the Ants? The other one. No. Phase four. Phase four? God damn it. Uh you guys could hate me. Throw me out of the club. <laughs> no, no, because no,
1: those were the two no, big okay. ant films that showed on early eighties yeah. uh USA channel. It was either yeah. Commander USA would either show Empire of the Ants. Or
4: Phase 4. 4, yeah. Which I actually have the vinyl soundtrack for Phase 4, which is the trippiest fucking soundtrack, if you can get your hands on it. Carl,
1: wipe oh, your don't, mouth don't off. don't
4: tell me.
2: Don't tell me. I don't want to know, because I'll come in the night.
4: <laughs> I, I got cool. it. <laughs> it comes, it's, a, it's a book album, too. It's beautiful.
2: Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> love, love this film. I saw this in the seventies, and and have like trumpeted it and like waved the flag for it for years, and nobody would fucking listen to me. But now, finally, it's getting the the, the respect it should, which which is yeah. about fucking time. Yeah,
1: I remember now, Fred when I, I met Carl, you, Carl at a monster bash the first time we met for real. I just said to him, "I got something for you." He's like, "What? You'll see." And then we got mm-hmm. there, and then I handed him the original paperback novel of the original script of uh. Phase 4 with the original <laughs> ending.
4: Damn. <laughs> now, was there yeah. ever a proper yeah. disc release of that film? Because Why, I did to look online. Okay.
2: So, so there wasn't this release of the theatrical cut and the aughts. Um, and you could only get it from Best Buy. But now there is a French Blu-ray release, and I think it's all region, with the ending, with the real ending. Oh, okay, good. Uh, I know that we were talking to filmmaker Dan Kramer, and Dan, I wanted Dan on with this, but he's not going to do it because... The Criterion Channel uh doesn't have the original ending. And and he's got the he's got the uh Blu ray. Uh, and the French for some Blu-ray.
1: reason the US distributors have the directors cut, but they won't do shit with it.
2: Uh that pisses uh, me off. Yeah, it's a Well think it's bullshit,
1: about Olive, they've yeah. They put out press releases for months, didn't they, Carl? We got the director's cut coming out on Blu-ray V. They got the director's cut, and then about two weeks before it came out, the motherfuckers would not let us have the print.
2: Yeah.
1: And I'm and I'm being a direct quote there, aren't I, Carl?
2: <laughs> yes, you are. Olive was not happy. No. And I think they sued him finally.
1: Yeah, they sued them because they to had to cancel about 40% of the pre-orders because people didn't want to buy that cut.
2: No,
4: we want the cut with the with the ending.
0: Yeah. Seriously.
4: That's the only reason I've been holding out buying it is because I want, you know, uh, all features, all, like, everything with it because... You're going to buy a movie, you want everything to go with it, you know, and you want like the original ending, cut scenes, commentaries. So I'm like holding out because all I keep finding is like no frills. Fucking here you go, here's the movie and a trailer. No, 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 look for
2: the French release. I'm not sure the company, yeah. but it is out yeah, I'm there. Gonna now. Look it up. And, and you might want all to right. talk to diabolik instead yeah. of Amazon.
1: Okay. You could
4: try Amazon. Oh, he knows
1: Diabolik. He just bought Mutant from him.
4: Yeah, Yeah. I just got Mutant, which is a special edition with commentary and interviews, so... (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Finally. And thank
5: (sighs) you
1: guys for listening to 500 episodes, and thank you guys for being on tonight, and definitely thank you to Felipe Mora. Watch more of his movies, people. He's more than Howling 2 and 3, and if you haven't seen Communion, watch it. It's one of the last great uh, our movies of the whole Chariot to the God UFO era.
2: And don't forget Brother Can You Spare a Dime either. Seriously. Oh yeah, Wonderful. Brother Can You Spare a
1: Dime and Swastika if you can find it.
2: Right. So, so one thing before we go is really, you know, as we look at 500 shows, Stephen, I have to really sincerely thank you for putting on putting you? up with me for so many things and we're oh, yeah. we're at each other's throats at times but really what you've done here and and having me on I truly cannot thank you enough. And I do well, mean I'll that from the say bottom it of my heart. Well, there was
1: before mind. but I'll say it right now. I forgive you for leaving the show the first time and getting aimily screwed and aimily screwing the members of your group by a group of con men who are just fishing.
0: <laughs> well,
2: whatever. <laughs> Fuck you.
4: I love you, <laughs> uh, I As All right, newbie, As a newbie, thank you guys for bringing me in.
2: Oh,
0: absolutely. Oh, no problem.
2: It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure.
1: And as we played yesterday <laughs> with Fred, we're doing this as another goodbye I mean with uh, Carl Here it is with another Time for goodbye Thank you for everyone listening to you And good night everybody
4: Good night 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 Good night
0: sweetheart Well it's time to go Good night sweetheart Well it's time to go But I really must say Oh Good night, sweetheart Good night do, 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 do. Good night, sweetheart, where time